fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they, Paul and Silas, spake unto him, the jailer, the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. They, took, they went to his house and told all the family how to be saved. Amen? And they all got baptized that very hour. Now here's a man that was literally moments from going off into eternity. Verse 27. The keeper of the prison, awakening out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. Under... Under Roman law, military law, if you had custody of a prisoner and the prisoner escaped, it was your life for the life of the prisoner. And he knew what it meant. It would mean a public execution. And so what did he do? He said, I'm going to take my own life. But praise God, the apostle Paul said, hey, with a loud voice, no, stop, no, 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 don't do that self, no harm. We're all here. We're not running. And the Bible said he came in. The, the, the jailer called for a light, sprang in and came trembling. I guess so if you're that close to death. Came in trembling, fell down. What must I do to be saved? He got born again. His wife got saved. All of his kids got saved. They all got baptized. Amen. Joseph said this to his brothers in Genesis 45, 7. God sent me before you. To save your lives. God sent me before you. To save your lives. Father in heaven. Through the power of your Holy Spirit. Touch our hearts again once more. About this important business. Of being a witness for Christ. In Jesus name. Amen. Eleven year old boys. And his dad. Pastor. Had a habit of going out. Passing out tracks after church on Sunday morning. On one particular Sunday morning, it was pretty cold and it was raining heavily. And the little boy, after they had their lunch, had put his little jacket on, was headed for the door. And his dad said, son, what are you doing? He said, dad, we're go- what we always do, we're going to give our tracks out. He said, son, it's pouring rain outside and it's cold. The little boy said, daddy, please. I, I, but but, 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 we, but I, want, I want to get my tracks out. I want to get my tracks out. And uh, anyway, back and forth, the dad and dad said, okay, son, you can go right here on the block, but don't go further but you can go give your tracks out. So he got his little wet jacket on, got his little boots on, went trucking up down in the rain with his handful of tracks, giving them out till he had one left. And he's ready to go back home. By this time, there was nobody on the street to be seen. He knocked on the door, said, I gave him a last track out, knocked on the door. Nobody answered the door. He knocked again. Nobody answered the door. He's ringing the doorbell, knocking, ringing the doorbell. Gave up, started to go down the steps of something, said I compelled in his heart. And he, he went back up again and rang the doorbell, knocked again. The door slowly opened, and an elderly lady, very sad face, look on her face, answered the door. He smiled, hand up his track, said, Ma'am, I'm here to tell you that God loves you. And this little piece of paper right here will tell you how about God loves you and how he will save you for all of eternity. She took the track. 
She went inside, read the track, bowed her head and trusted Christ as her Savior. The next Sunday morning, she came to church and the pastor recognized her. She said, "My say a word, please. Yes, ma'am. She said, last Sunday afternoon, she said, I've never been to this church before, but last Sunday afternoon, that little boy right up there knocked on my door in the pouring rain. He rang the doorbell first. Then he rang again. Then he rang and knocked. She said, my husband died some months ago. She said, I've been so hopeless. I didn't have much left to live for. I had gone to my attic with a rope and a chair. I had tied the rope to the rafter. I had the other end of the rope around my neck standing on a chair when the doorbell rang. And she said, I thought to myself, I'll wait for it to, go, to quit. So, But it rang again. And then it rang again. She said, I waited. Then there was a pause. Then it was ringing and knocking. And ringing and knocking. And I said to myself, I'll go see who's at the door and then I'll come back. And it was that little boy. And she said, I found hope in Jesus Christ. And I want to thank that little boy for bringing me that pamphlet. I think I was a junior in Bible college. And Armitage Avenue runs east-west in there in North Chicago. And Lindell Street's just where you get to California Street. It runs north-south. A little uh, 12-year-old girl came, rode our bus. I think she was 12 years old. Rode our Sunday school bus. First Baptist Church in Hammond, week after week after week. I never knew her dad. Her dad was in, was in prison. And uh, just uh, her and her mom there in the house. And she came pretty faithfully. And uh, I came by on one Sunday to pick her up, and she wasn't there. I went back the next uh, uh, Saturday to visit, and a man came to the door. And uh, his name was Martin. And um, they lived on the second uh, second floor, about the second building down Lindell Street. On the first floor, it was a family, the Galatian Marchon family. And all that whole household got saved, came to Christian school, became faithful members of the church. But on the second floor where this little girl lived, and Martin came down. He came down that stairwell inside the building, and the door opened. And I stood there in the stairwell with him. Asked him about his soul. He said, no, I don't know where I'd spend eternity. And I, and I showed him. And he bowed his head and received Christ as Savior. About, I went back the next Saturday and got nobody. And for a couple of weeks, got nobody at the apartment until somebody else moved in. I never knew what happened to the little girl that rode her bus. Never knew what happened to Martin. Six months later, I, we were loading our buses up on a Sunday afternoon to take them all back to Chicago after the services. And another bus captain came up to me and said, Hey, I found a little girl used to ride your bus, lived on Lindell Street. Described I said, Yeah. He said, Well, we found her. She's riding my bus. And I said, Man, that's fantastic. And then he said this. He said, And her mom said, Be sure to tell you how much you thank. They thank you for saving Martin's life. 
And I said, oh, yeah, I said, that, 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 uh, uh, that, I met Martin. And uh, he said, yeah, they said, that's, that's the little girl's dad. I said, man, that's wonderful. And, um, and uh, uh, I said, that, that, that's, that's wonderful. And they said, well, they want you to come and, uh, and, and, and visit them. And so I said, I'd love to. And so he gave me the address. It's a different route, different area. But they just want me to come. And so on a Saturday or two later, I drove off my area and went over to this home and visited with the little girl and her mom. And mom said to me again, she said, thank you so much for saving Martin's life. And I, I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, so gr- I'm glad. I'm so glad he got saved. I'm so, it's great he got saved. And Martin had come home from prison. And I didn't know all this at the time, but Martin had come home from prison and earlier than the family expected. And there was some, obviously some real, real issues. I don't know all the issues, but, but the mom, quite frankly, was afraid of him. And uh, he had gotten out of prison. He called, he said, I'm, I'm on my way home. And she out of fear, gathered all, just put clothes in garbage bags, wherever she could find, and they got out of there and went to live out closer to the suburbs of the city. So when I had visited that home, nobody else was there except Martin. Martin came. He had just gotten there that week. And so I'm out visiting uh, visiting the, the little girl and her mom. And mom said again, she said, oh, thank you, thank you for saving his life. And I, something about it, so I said, I said, you, you, you mean, you're talking about how, how he got saved, right? She goes, well, yeah, I know that he got saved, but I mean, I said, I don't think I know what you're talking about. She said, he didn't tell you? I said, I don't think so. And she told the story, how that he had come home from prison. He had made up his mind. In fact, while he was in prison, he had told God, he said, God, if you'll let me get back to my family, he said, I'm going to treat him right. I'm going to do right. I want your help, God. I want you in my life. I want my family back. And he'd come home and his family, afraid of him, had left. And he had no hope. What I did not know, that that Saturday when I knocked on Martin's door there on Lindell Street, that he had emptied a bottle of pills into his hand and had him cupped like this, ready to toss him in his mouth to take his own life. When I knocked on the door, he went down to the bottom of the stairs, got saved, Went upstairs, took the pills, flushed them down the toilet. <laughs> Joseph said, God sent me before you to save your lives. May I say, dear church family, we don't save anybody's soul. But hallelujah, we get to be the vessels God uses to tell the good news of Jesus Christ. That'll save a man's soul. Thomas Bach was 18 years old on the streets of Copenhagen, Denmark. And a man offered him a gospel tract. And he said, why don't you bother other people with your religion? I'm doing just fine. I can take care of myself. And he took a little tract and to make a point, ripped it up a little piece of stuff in his pocket. The soul winner, whoever it was, stepped back into a doorway and began to weep. And that seemed so strange to this 18-year-old young man. And he looked at that soul owner and saw the tears coming down their face and it bothered him. When he got back home, he reached into that pocket and wanted to know what it was that bothered that person so badly. And he took that water paper out and he laid it all out 
pieced it back together best he could. And he read, But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He got convicted of his sin. He got on his knees right there at age 18 and asked Jesus Christ to be his Savior as the gospel tract showed him. Thomas Johannes Bach would later become the general director of the Evangelical Alliance Mission Team with 800 missionary workers laboring all around the world. Just like Joseph, saving lives. December 7th, 1941, 183 Japanese planes left American warships burning in Pearl Harbor. The air commander of that Japanese fleet was a man by the name of Mitsuo Fushida. After the war, Mitsuo was so troubled by the strife that he had led in the bombing of Pearl Harbor. He actually wrote a little book entitled No More Pearl Harbors. And in that book, he was pleading for peace and for the world to pursue peace. And yet he had no clue how to have peace in his own soul. Until one day on a trip to Tokyo, Mitsuo was handed a pamphlet entitled, I Was a Prisoner of Japan. It was written by former prisoner of war, Jacob DeShazer, who was locked in a Japanese prison for 40 months. And while there, he was miraculously given a Bible. And through that Bible, he became a Christian himself. He would later go back to Japan to witness to his captors. And through the witness and the written testimony of Jacob DeShazer, Mitsuo Fushida came to faith in Jesus Christ. Those men actually traveled together across Japan preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ after the war was ended. You've heard all my stories a dozen times. I'm just testifying tonight. But I was still, it was still college days, and I was uh, driving a 28-foot straight truck for overnight transportation, and, uh, and the truck was starting to have trouble, and it, and it stopped, right, right, literally just a few blocks from the Sears Tower, right in downtown Chicago, one-way streets. And the uh, truck would stop, and it was inclined, and it wouldn't turn over. And uh, so I, I called on the radio, called dispatch, and they said, try this, and I tried that. And they said, I'd try this, and I tried that. And finally they said, well, you just have to wait. We'll get somebody as soon as we can, but probably going to be 45 minutes or better before we can get somebody there to look at your truck. So I, there I was, uh, a one-way street, several several lanes across, and there I was in the far right lane. In the middle of these one-way streets was an area, a greenway, probably about the size of this auditorium, some grass, a few trees, bushes, and a park bench or two, a little sidewalk going through them. There I'm sitting in my truck, and I look over there, and there's a man sitting on a bench, obviously a homeless man. And the Holy Spirit touched my heart to go talk to him, and so I got out of my truck, went over, sat down next to the man on the bench, and I introduced myself, so my name's John. And I said, I'd like to ask you a question about your soul. The man didn't look up. He didn't speak to me. He didn't respond. I tried to make a little small talk with him, and he would make no small talk. And I started to go back to the truck, and I thought, well, I don't have anything to lose. He's not going anywhere. Might as well tell him how to be saved. I said, sir, I'm not even sure if you can hear what I'm saying, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you how you can be saved just in case you'd like to know how to be saved. And I went through the Romans road. I told him the gospel. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. The penalty of sin is death and hell. Jesus paid the price. You can receive Christ by faith as your Savior. I explained it to him. He never looked up at me. He never spoke to me. He never responded even one time. I got down the end. I said, sir, I said, I don't know if you hear a word I said, but 
If you need to be saved and you'd like to be saved, I'd like to help you. And I, as I have many, many hundreds and I guess thousands of times, I can't do this for you, but I'd like to help you. If you'd like to receive Christ as Savior, you could take these words I'm about to pray into your own heart and you could give this to the Lord from your own heart and you could be saved. And I bowed my head and I said, Now, Lord, I've done the best I can. I don't know if this man can hear me or not, but if he needs to be saved and he wants to be saved, help him to respond. And I said, Sir, if you'd like to be saved, won't you just tell the Lord this from your heart, dear Jesus? He said, Dear Jesus. I was shocked. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I know if I died, I'd go to hell. I know if I died, I'd go to hell. And went to the sinner's prayer with him. And he received Christ. We got done. He lifted up his head. He looked at me. First words out of his mouth. He said, my name's John too. I said, well, hey, John. It's nice to meet you. <laughs> and we chatted for a few minutes. I, I thought, well, i got to get back to the truck. Told him who I was. Why I was there. Truck broke down. I went and crawled back in the truck. It was probably going to be another 15 minutes or something before the, before the mechanic got there. I'm sitting there. My heart's full. Big smile on my face. Just rejoicing in the Lord. And all of a sudden it crossed my mind. And I thought, surely not. And I thought, it'd be just like the Lord. I got the key, put it in ignition, turned it over, fired up just like that. I called dispatch. I said, you can go on back to the shop. I don't need you. I think somebody already fixed the truck. Amen. I believe that as a divine appointment. Amen. I believe that's a divine appointment. Stephen told me this today at lunch. He told me, he said, I really believe God put me at this job so I could meet Miguel, so I could meet you and come to this church and get saved. Somebody say amen. <laughs> There's a God in heaven. There's a God in heaven. Dr. John Rice, was, he was born 1895, and he would have been in his early 40s. He was pastor of a church in Dallas, Texas at the time. He was sick with the flu. It was 11 o'clock. It was during the Great Depression. And 11 o'clock at night, the phone rang at the house. And he could hear his wife on, on the phone. said, no, I'm sorry. He's sick. He's, in, he's in, in, sick in bed with the flu. He's not even going to be preaching tomorrow. And Dr. Rice, laying just sick as he could be, laying in his bed, called Mama, he said, who is it? <laughs> he said, it's, two, it's this man and woman. They want to know if you'll pray for them. He said, well, tell them if they'll come to the house. Now, I can't get out of the bed, but if they'll come to the house and come back to the bedroom, I'll pray for them. She said, well, he said he'll come. You have to come inside and have to go back to his bed because he's real sick. They said, we'll come. They came to Dr. John Rice's sick bed, and they told him his story. The man had incurable disease. And Dr. Rice says this in one of his books. I read it and he said, I re remember it to be cancer, but he couldn't say with certainty. But whatever it was, it was incurable. He had a, basically a death sentence from the doctor. His, and again, keep in mind, it's the middle of the Great Depression. His sickness had caused him where he could no longer do his job. He lost his job. When he lost his job, his wife walked out on him. He literally had no one. He took some of his last bit of money, went to the Oak Cliff Hotel in Dallas, Texas, bought a room for $1, had a gas stove in it. He locked himself in that hotel room, took some paper, stepped up under the door, closed all the windows, and turned the gas on. 
No fire, just turn the gas on and lay down on the bed to go off into eternity. The maid at the hotel smelled something. And she went and knocked on the door. She knew something was amiss. She knocked on the door. She got her master key. She opened the door. She found the man laying on the bed unconscious. Unconscious. She called for an ambulance. They took him to the hospital. They were able to revive him. They were able to save his life. Feeling some responsibility herself, when she got off her shift, she went to the hospital to see if she could find the man. And sure enough, he was still there at the hospital. She went in to see him, and the man said, uh, she said, thank you for what you did for me. She began to talk to him. He began to tell his story. She said, "Why? what is it? What's on your He said, I'm, I don't have any reason to live. And he told his story. She said, you know, I've thought many times myself about taking my own life. She said, I've done wicked things with my life. And she said, I, I'm ashamed of the things I've done. And she, she said this. She said, you know, why don't we, why don't we go see a priest together? You're going to be released here. Why don't we? We'll go see a priest. They released him from the emergency room, and this woman, <laughs> with a very poor life story and testimony, if you will, no, not saved, neither one of them saved. And this man who just came that close to going off into eternity went down to the priest, the Catholic church right there, went to the priest. 11 o'clock at night, knocked on the door. The Catholic priest came to the door said, it's 11 o'clock at night. I've got mass at 6 o'clock in the morning. What do you want? And he said, we just, we need help. He said, y'all are drunk. Leave me alone. Go away. And closed the door in their face. The maid turned to the man. He said this. He said, forget it. He said, there's no hope for me. She said, wait a minute. She said, my mama always talks about her pastor. Says so he's the best pastor in Dallas, Texas. She called Mama. Mama gave the phone, gave her the phone number. She called the home of Dr. John Rice, eleven o'clock at night, in his sick bed with the flu. Dr. Rice said, "Send him over." They came over, told their story. He shared the gospel with them, and both of them received Jesus Christ as Savior. Hallelujah! God sent me before you to save your lives. One of the great mission works in the world today is Dr. Kevin Wynn. Hundreds and thou- of thousands of people are being saved annually. That's the most incredible thing. I asked him, he said, I don't know, about years ago, five, six, seven, eight years ago, however many. I said, how many churches did you start? He said, I don't know. He said, we stopped counting at 600 years ago. He says, no way to keep up with it. Now it's mission field across the Central America and all over Mexico. When he was an 18-year-old boy, put a rifle up under his chin. No hope. Roman Catholic family. No hope for eternal salvation. Put his thumb on the trigger. He's putting pressure on the trigger. And it dawned on me. He said, you know, I wonder where I'm going to be when, 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 I, when I leave here. He said, you know, I think there's probably some answers in, in the Bible. And so he, he laid the rifle down, put a Bible down, started reading the Bible. Read the Bible for several days. Read, 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 read the Bible. Reading through the Gospels. He realized Jesus Christ was the only hope. He believed on Jesus and he got born again. I was thinking about so many, many people. I pulled these off my shelf as I was coming out here tonight. 
These are New Testament. The Lord gave us a soul yesterday. Uh, Sam and I gave the Lord gave us a soul. We stood in the rain, one, one young man to Christ in the rain. And I thought about this New Testament right here. I remember holding this New Testament right here. And the, the pages are brown right here at Romans 3.23. And I remember holding this New Testament standing in the rain, winning a man to Christ. And um, filling it up with names. Uh, Leslie's uh, stepdad, Bobby, is in one of these New Testaments. And... Uh, um, Barbara Nance's husband Lowell is in one of these. Many, many people that are already with the Lord are in these New Testaments. This last spring, something unique happened. Our we were visiting on a Saturday, and uh, Stacy was with me. We were visiting. I think Stacy was with me. One of the girls, I think Stacy was with me. And we were visiting someone that uh, had gotten saved recently, was coming to church and so forth. That we And she said, Dad, that's a good area right there. We haven't been there. We had knocked doors there. And the teenagers now, they, they all look, they're always looking for a good soul winning a hole, a good fishing hole. And she noticed a place there. She said, "We, I, well, I don't think we've been here. And uh, so a week or two later, they went. And... Uh, it was some uh, some elder folks lived in that in that little pocket of homes there, and uh, and um, and they were going in there. Miss Karen, you know what a rabble rouser Miss Karen is, and uh, but they were witnessing in there, and uh, knocked on a lady's door, and she gave them a hard time. She she I think she was resting or something, and anyway, she gave them a hard time and scolded them. These teenage girls and Miss Karen scolded them. And um, sent them on their way. Then, a week later, less than a week later, that same lady that scolded our, little, our, our, our young ladies wrote this letter on uh, March the 8th. To the youth pastor, I think that I owe an apology to five or six of your young ladies who came to our apartment complex around 4 o'clock or a little after this afternoon. I hope that my actions did not discourage them from doing God's work because of my ugliness. I'm a Christian, and I realize the importance of winning people to the Lord, especially in times such as these we're all we're experiencing. What a blessing to see young people witnessing. Please extend my sincere apology to them. And she goes on to explain truth. Well, I was exhausted. I was tired and so on and so forth. And it's a one, two, three, four, five-page letter. She closes it this way. I had to write this tonight while it's fresh on my mind. I don't want to forget anything. Tonight, as I pray, I'll beg God's forgiveness for being so ugly when they awaken me this afternoon. Please accept my apology. Sincerely, she gave her name and address and phone number. Now, here's the unusual thing about that. That happened on a Wednesday afternoon in March. Less than a week after that, two ladies, Christine Christensen and Pat Stratton, both of whom were brought to church and reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ the Wednesday afternoon teen soul winning, went to be with the Lord in the same week. Can I tell you something, my dear friend? 
This is the greatest business in all the wide world. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Amen. Do we believe that people have a, 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 a never dying soul? Do we believe that when we leave this world, we're not like a plant or an animal or a tree. That when God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. That when we die and our body goes back to dust. That our soul goes on to eternal life in heaven or eternal death in hell. Do we believe that we must all stand given account of ourselves and of our life. And that our soul will be either in heaven or in hell for all of eternity. Do we believe that or do we not? And do we believe as the Bible said that a soul is worth more than all the world. One soul more worth more than all the world if that be true as Jesus said then there's no greater business in all the world than the king's business of going into all the world and preaching the gospel to every creature so many sweet stories I was going back through looking through records of Kenya Lindsay Kevin Spivey Misty Williams saved the jail ministry Bobby Gerald Deborah Harrison Saved to the bus ministry first Spanish person ever come to our church they shook bed about knocking on doors Francisco Lopez Francisco Lopez came to Christ. At least, I'm sure it probably was before I got here, of course, but but first Hispanic that ever came. Francisco Lopez, buried right across the street over there. I remember Teresa Martin got saved. I was up on uh, Old Liberty Road, and I had, uh, uh, Donald, I had left, uh, where's Donald out? There you go. I had left, uh, I was visiting your mom. And Kelly, and I had left there, <clears throat> and I came to, a, and I had a couple families on my mind to go to one of the families. I have to go straight, the other I have to go left into Franklinville, and I just stopped right there on the side of the road. I didn't know where to go, and I stopped on the side of the road. I said, "Lord, where do you want me to go? I don't have enough time to get to everybody." And it was already later in the evening, Saturday evening, and the Lord, I felt like the Lord was telling me go to Franklinville, and I went over to Franklinville, and um, and Kevin and all the family was there, and Teresa was there. And I went in and sat down on the couch and started going through the gospel. Kevin had grown up in church, but he, he uh, did not understand salvation. And so uh, when, when, when I went through the gospel, and he's asking questions. I remember he said, you mean we can know? We got all the way through. He said, you mean we can know? And he grabbed his son, his oldest son. He grabbed me. He said, we can know. We can. He was so excited. Too. I said, well, now listen, there's a punchline. I said, you got to personally receive him. You're calling him by faith. He said, how do we do that? I said, just call him up. I said, we can get right now on our knees and we can do it right now. He said, let's do it. He, he, and, he, and he took over the invitation. He looked at his, his wife. He said, Teresa, do you need to do this? She said, well, I, I have asked Jesus to save me before. She said, but I didn't understand all this. And she said, now that I understand really what it means to be saved, she says, yes, I do need to be saved. Then he turned to his son. Son, do you need, this? Do you need to be saved? He goes, yes, Dad. Son, do you need to be saved? We're all the way through the whole family. I said, well, let's get on our knees. And Kevin dropped on his knees. He said, all right, everybody on their knees. Little Colton was still in his mama's arms at this time, little Colton. And, and Teresa's on the couch, got Colton in his arms. And, and Kevin's already down on his knees. He looked up, and Miss Teresa's still trying to lay Colton down to get down on her knees. He goes, honey, get on your knees. And she said, I'm coming. <laughs> and she laid little Colton down on the couch. She got on her knees, and they all called on the Lord and trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. Amen. Now Teresa's walking on streets of gold. I remember Rob Brantley weeping his way to Jesus Christ in a hospital bed. Emmett Summerford 
sitting in service. Preacher man, it was just me and you. Nobody else was in the room. That's the way he would tell it. And now he's running up and down streets of gold. Amen. Greatest business in all the world is the soul winning business. You and I, dear friend, have a divine call, a command, a commission. I want you to watch this video. If you'll get that ready. And as soon as this video is over, we'll have a little invitation. You enjoy this. It's a powerful, powerful testimony. A number of years ago, in a Baptist church in Crystal Palace in southern London, the Sunday morning service was closing and a stranger stood up at the back, raised his hand, he said, excuse me, pastor, can I share a little testimony? The pastor looked at his watch, he said, you've got three minutes. And this man proceeded, he said, I've just moved into this area, I used to live in another part of London, I came from Sydney in Australia, and just a few months back I was visiting some relatives, and I was walking down George Street. You know where George Street is in Sydney. It runs from the business hub out to the rocks, the colonial area. And he said, a strange little white-haired man stepped out of a shop doorway, put a pamphlet in my hand, and he said, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? He said, I was astounded by those words. Nobody had ever told me that. I thanked him courteously. And all the way on British Airlines, back to Heathrow, this puzzled me. I called a friend who lived in this new area, where I'm living now, and thank God he was a Christian. He led me to Christ. And I'm a Christian and I want a fellowship here. And Baptists love testimonies like it. Everyone applauded and welcomed him into the fellowship. That Baptist pastor flew to Adelaide in Australia the next week. And ten days later, in the middle of a three-day series in a Baptist church in Adelaide, a woman came to him for counseling and he wanted to establish where she stood with Christ. And she said, I used to live in Sydney. And just a couple of months back, I was visiting friends in Sydney, doing some last-minute shopping down George Street, and a strange little white-haired man, elderly man, stepped out of a shop doorway, offered me a pamphlet and said, Excuse me, ma'am, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? She said, I was disturbed by those words. When I got back to Adelaide, I knew this Baptist church was on the next block from me, and I sought out the pastor, and he led me to Christ. So, sir, I'm telling you that I am a Christian. Now, this London pastor was now very puzzled. Twice, within a fortnight, he'd heard the same testimony. He then flew to preach in the Mount Pleasant Baptist Church in Perth. And when his teaching series was over, the senior elder of that church took him out for a meal. And he said, mate, how'd you get saved? He said, I grew up in this church from the age of 15 through Boys Brigade. Never made a commitment to Jesus, just hopped on the bandwagon like everybody else. And because of my business ability, grew up to a place of influence. I was on a business outing in Sydney just three years ago. And an obnoxious, spiteful little man stepped out of a stop shop doorway, offered me a religious pamphlet, cheap junk, and accosted me with a question. Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? He said, I tried to tell him I was a Baptist elder. He wouldn't listen to me. He said, I was seething with anger all the way home on Qantas to, to Perth. He said, I told my pastor, thinking he would sympathize with me, and my pastor agreed. He had been disturbed for years, knowing that I didn't have a relationship with Jesus, and he was right. And my pastor led me to Jesus just three years ago. Now, this London preacher flew back to the UK and was speaking at the Keswick Convention in the Lake District. And he threw in these three testimonies. At the close of his teaching session, four elderly pastors came up and said, we got saved between 25 and 35 years ago, respectively, through that little man on George Street giving us a tract and asking us that question. He then flew the following week to a similar Keswick Convention in the Caribbean. 
to missionaries. And he shared the testimonies. At the close of his teaching session, three missionaries came up and said, we got saved between 15 and 25 years ago, respectively, through that little man's testimony and asking us that same question on George Street in Sydney. Coming back to London, he stopped outside Atlanta, Georgia, to speak at a naval chaplain's convention. And when his three days of revving these naval chaplains up, over a thousand of them, in soul winning, the chaplain general took him out for a meal. And he said, how did you become a Christian? He said, well, it was miraculous. I was a rating on a United States battleship, and I lived a reprobate life. We were doing exercises in the South Pacific, and we docked in Sydney Harbour for replenishments. We hit King's Cross with a vengeance. I got blind drunk. I got on the wrong bus, got off in George Street, and... <laughs> As I got off the bus, I thought it was a ghost. This elderly, white-haired man jumped in front of me, pushed a pamphlet in my hand and said, Sailor, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? He said, the fear of God hit me immediately. I was shocked sober and ran back to the battleship, sought out the chaplain. The chaplain led me to Christ. And I soon began to prepare for the ministry under his guidance. And here I am in charge of over a thousand chaplains and we're bent on soul winning today. That London preacher... Six months later, flew to do a convention for 5,000 Indian missionaries in a remote corner of northeastern India. And at the end, the Indian missionary in charge, a humble little man, took him home to his humble little home for a simple meal. And he said, how did you, as a Hindu, come to Christ? He said, I was in a very privileged position. I worked for the Indian diplomatic mission. And I traveled the world. And I am so glad for the forgiveness of Christ and his blood covering my sin, because I'd be very embarrassed if people found out what I got into. He said, one bout of diplomatic service took me to Sydney. And I was doing some last-minute shopping laden with parcels of toys and clothing for my children, walking down George Street, and this courteous little white-haired man stepped out in front of me, offered me a pamphlet, and said, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? He said, I thanked him very much, but this disturbed me. I got back to my town, I sought out the Hindu priest, and he couldn't help me. But he gave me some advice. He said, just to satisfy your curious mind, nothing else, go and talk to the missionary in the mission house at the end of the road. And that was fatal advice. He said, because that day the missionary led me to Christ, I quit Hinduism immediately, and then began to study for the ministry. I left the diplomatic service, and here I am, by God's grace, in charge of all these missionaries, and we are winning hundreds of thousands of people to Christ. Well, eight months later... That Crystal Palace Baptist pastor was ministering in Sydney, in Gymea, southern suburb of Sydney. And he said to the Baptist minister, do you know a little man, an elderly little man, who witnesses and hands out tracts on George Street? And he said, I do. His name is Mr. Genor, G-E-N-O-R. But I don't think he does it anymore. He's too frail and elderly. The man said, I want to meet him. Two nights later, they went around to this little apartment, knocked on the door, and this tiny, frail little man opened the door. He sat them down, made them some tea, and he was so frail he was slopping tea into the saucer as he shook. And as he sat with them, this London preacher told him all these accounts over the previous three years. This little man sat with tears running down his cheeks. He said, my story goes like this. He said, I was a rating on an Australian warship, and I lived a reprobate life, and in a crisis, I really hit the wall, and one of my colleagues whom I gave literal hell was there to help me. He led me to Jesus, and the change in my life was night to day in 24 hours. And I was so grateful to God. I promised God that I would share Jesus in a simple witness with at least 10 people a day. 
as God gave me strength. Sometimes I was ill, I couldn't do it, but I made up for it for other times. I wasn't paranoid about it, but I have done this for over 40 years, and in my retirement years, the best place was on George Street. There were hundreds of people. I got lots of rejections, but a lot of people courteously took the tracks. And he said, in 40 years of doing this, I've never heard of one single person coming to Jesus until today. Do you know, I would say that has to be commitment. That has to be just sheer gratitude and love for Jesus to do that. Not hearing of any results. Margarita did a little count. That's 146,100 people. That simple little non-charismatic Baptist man influenced somehow to Jesus. And I believe what God was showing that Baptist minister was the tip of the tip of the tip of the tip of this iceberg. Goodness knows how many more had been arrested for Christ and were doing huge jobs out in the mission field. Mr. Genor died two weeks later. And can you imagine the reward he went home to in heaven? I doubt if his face would ever have appeared on Charisma magazine. I doubt if there would ever have been a write-up with a photograph in Billy Graham's Decision magazine, as beautiful as those magazines are. Nobody except a little group of Baptists in southern Sydney knew about Mr. Genor. But I'll tell you, his name was famous in heaven. Heaven knew Mr. Genor. And you can imagine the welcome and the red carpet and the fanfare he went home to when he arrived in glory. Father, what a great privilege it is to represent you. Let's open the altars. Let's just, let's just commit ourselves once more to be a faithful witness to Christ.